Uh, we've been working through this series, uh, 24, the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus. Uh, we've said it, I think, at the beginning of every uh, session. Critical, isn't it? Um, a, th- a third of the gospel accounts talk about the death of Jesus. It's significant for us. Um, pretty much as we look at that day, we see it broken up by uh, the Hebrew way of describing uh, the hours of the day, the third hour, the sixth hour, uh, the ninth hour. That tends to be the way that we understand it. And uh, we see the uh, sixth hour now as we uh, come to this particular part of uh, the, the time as Jesus is dying on the cross. I have a, I have a confession to make as we open up. Um, most kids have um, either pop groups or, um, or football teams or famous people or something like that on their wall as they're growing up. That's kind of the norm. I'm going to show you what I had on my wall. Now, some of you will think... I can't believe that somebody as geeky as that can be so cool later on. (laughs) However, I reckon most of you will be thinking that answers a lot. (laughs) Uh, It's Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. (laughs) I haven't got a clue why I had it on my my wall. I haven't got a clue. Um, But I I had this painting and I thought, that is, that is just the thing to have on the wall. And uh, there it was. Actually, at a roundabout, well, when the lights are off and you're kind of lying in bed, suddenly that becomes a really, really scary picture. Really scary. I think it lasted around about two days on the wall. Um, in fact, I'm kind of, you know, confronting some of my demons of the past by even putting it on Google it, and I found it, and I thought, whoa, that's, a, that's that scary picture. There's something, isn't there? There's something incredibly powerful about the idea of darkness. Uh, even as adults, there is something astoundingly powerful We know it as children. We definitely know it as children. You know, it's that kind of time when you've got to go upstairs and get something out of your bedroom, and it's night time, and even though every light is on in the house, because it's dark outside, you're able to clear the stairs in three bounds and get back downstairs. But, But there is something incredibly deep, about the idea of darkness. Right at the center of the death of Jesus is an incredible event. The very center of his death on the cross is an astounding event which centers around darkness. If you um, are just coming to terms with the way the Bible is broken up, it's in two halves, Old Testament, New Testament, the New Testament, which is the life of, begins with the life of Jesus, has four accounts of his life. The first three Gospels, as they're called, Gospel because they're good newses, effectively. Uh, they're messages of good news. The, the four Gospels, the first three, sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels, 
every single one of those three accounts uh, mentions this, darkness. Matthew says, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 45 says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came, came over all the land. Mark 15, 33, as we're reading here, right at the very beginning of our reading, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's the third hour, that's the sixth hour to the ninth hour in Hebrew uh, talk. Uh, Luke says, verse 44 and 45 of chapter 23, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. Three accounts. Uh, Just remind ourselves when the death of Jesus was. It's in Hebrew terms, in Jewish terms, it's at the Feast of the Passover. And one of the important things about the Feast of the Passover is that it is held uh, during uh, the period of full moon, which actually means that it is astronomically impossible for it to be a solar eclipse. Apart from the fact that solar eclipse is, if that's the right way to describe them, yeah, plural eclipse, only lasts a few minutes, doesn't it? And yet what we see here is three hours of darkness. It's recorded in various other non-biblical historical accounts. Other people refer to it. I think as soon as we see that in all three accounts, we've got to stop and we've got to say, what does that mean? What is going on? I want to look at it in three ways. I want to see the immediate impact of that event, the historical significance of that event, and the current hope. There's the three ways that we're going to look at it. The immediate impact. Flagan records that during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, there was a complete solar eclipse at full moon from the 6th to the ninth hour historical account. He calls it a solar eclipse because he doesn't know how to describe it, but then we know for other reasons that it can't possibly be that. The Bible has another perspective on it. The Bible has this perspective, in fact it's quite insistent I think, that what we actually see at this moment in time is a supernatural occurrence. Uh, An event which is beyond human explanation. Beyond human explanation. We can't get away with the idea of it being an eclipse. Apart from the time of uh, the the month in which it was in terms of it being a full moon and then it's it's, um, astronomically impossible. Apart from that, it just lasts too long. It just lasts too long. Those of you who managed, some of you might have even seen a solar eclipse, uh, experienced it. I would love to experience that. Some are nodding and you've seen it. Uh, there's that moment where you get the diamond ring effect where the sun just peeps out and you get the... But I've seen it on TV, I've, well, I've seen it on YouTube, and it doesn't last very long. You actually, you can, you can watch a video of it. 
And yet what we see here is an immediate impact, which is dramatic. It's dramatic. I want you to imagine that there is an incredible event going on in the city in which you live. It is an incredible event for Jesus to have been crucified. It it just shook Jerusalem. It was the buzz of the time. Jesus was having an incredible impact. And uh, previous to this, he's come into the city. Everybody in the city has been aware of him arriving. It's been the big news. Uh, And then in a very short period of time of a week, everything turns around. And those who are applauding him and giving him accolade now turn against him. That's what we see. It is the news of the moment. Uh, and then as that is happening, and geez, the final outcome of that is, you know, if you were in Jerusalem, you could well be, have been one of those people. I could well have been one of those people who has watched this unfold. And then when Pilate suggests that we release Barabbas, we could well have been those who are standing on the edge shouting, no, crucify him. <laughs> we could well be there. This is massive. Then Jesus is nailed to a cross. Uh, Somebody else, as we saw last week, Simon of Cyrene, having had to carry his cross for him. Jesus is nailed to a cross. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, very deliberately in the middle of the day, at noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, there is absolute darkness. Three hours of absolute darkness. It's so historically significant that every one of the gospel writers record it. In other words, I want you to now imagine this, because you might be thinking, I can't believe that that happened. I want you to imagine this. The gospels start to circulate in a relatively short time after Jesus. The story of Jesus starts to be circulating. 20 years, Mark is recording it. 20 years' time, there's a whole load of us who will still be around who would remember remarkable events. As we see that unfolding, as we see the story starting to gain momentum, this event holds weight. It's not, it's not, the story doesn't fall flat when people like you and me read it and say, well, hang on a sec, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. It didn't go dark between noon and three. It's so imprinted on our minds that when we read those first gospel gospel events, we would be saying, yeah, I remember that. So for me, the very fact that all three of the first three gospel writers record this, rather than making it seem incredible and unbelievable, is quite the reverse It would not have stood the test of time in those first decades had it not been true because it is such an outlandish thing to say. It's so remarkable. And so we see that you and I, standing around that hillside, suddenly it goes dark at noon. I don't know about you, but that would shake me, wouldn't it? There's something else which I think has a very, very powerful, immediate impact of this event. 
right the way up to this point, right the way up till noon, Jesus has been arrested, he's been tried, he's been found guilty in a kangaroo court with all sorts of legal failures. He's carried out and he is, he is whipped. He takes his cross uh, or he walks with his cross up to Calvary and he is nailed to the cross. Right up to that moment in time, everything looks perfectly human. Perfectly human. It just looks like another criminal who is being nailed to a cross. This is the moment where God declares this is more than just another person dying. God intervenes. God breaks into this world for three hours and stamps His creative power on this world and reverses normal creation laws to say what is going on as this man dies on a cross is beyond normal human events. That's an immediate. It's one of the things that we see. This is the moment where God says it's more than just another death during the crucifixion. Everything else looks very normal. But God says this is special. Remarkably different. Nobody else does it go dark between noon and three in the afternoon as they die on a cross. In fact, the timing of it, as we see, is that Jesus actually dies at the end of the darkness. Or putting it another way, the darkness ends as Jesus dies. Either way, however we want to describe it, it is totally connected to this man hanging on this cross. There is an immediate impact. In fact, we can see that the, the impact is so powerful that later on we can see the centurion says, when he saw the way Jesus had died, he says, surely this was the Son of God. Why did he say that? Because Jesus died just like everybody else, didn't he? He was nailed to a cross. He died quickly. There were lots of things that he said, but there was nothing intrinsically about his death that looks different. Why did the centurion say it? Because the immediate impact on him was the extraordinary event of three hours of darkness as this man hangs on a cross. Historically recorded and therefore available for us to ask the question today, why? Why? Why is it, okay, that's the immediate impact, but we might walk away from here and say, well, so what? The next step that we need to take is to ask, what is the historical significance? Why is it so important? Firstly, as we've seen in lots of the events around Jesus' death, there is, it's as though, as we've said on many occasions, the, the cross is like the everything sort of finds its point of origin at the cross. Right the way through the Bible, everything makes sense at the cross. The things before, the things after. 
It all finds its origin in that moment. It's as though, and many theologians have described it like this, it's as though eternity breaks into time. It's that significant. One of the things that we see is that we see almost like like, uh, like guide ropes thrown backwards into various parts of the Bible which connect this moment to times gone by. There's a prophetic word, a word that Amos writes. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9 says, in that day. Now, in that day is one of those phrases that the prophets used again and again to describe the significant events of Jesus. They're looking forward and they're saying, in that day, when that happens, declares the sovereign Lord, what does Amos say? I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Isn't that remarkable? Hundreds of years before the death of Jesus, Amos says, as as this storyline of the Bible unfolds, in that day, I'll darken the sky in the middle of the day. In broad daylight, I'll darken the earth. It's what God says he will do. In other words, this moment in Jesus' life is, is connecting him to all of the prophetic words, all of the things that have gone before, all of the moments that are saying for us as we see it unfold, be ready. Be ready because this is going to come. But is it just sort of, um, is it just a trick? Or just a kind of a little tag. Uh, You know, some of you use various databases, I'm sure, various uh, online databases. Great thing about databases these days is you can tag it with something. Uh, And it's just a little aid memoir, if you like. I'll tag it with that word so that I can remember it. Uh, Is it just a tag that says, oh, don't forget, this is all about Jesus? Or does it carry a a deeper historical significance? Is there something more? Well, there is. We can go even further back and we can read about another event. It's an event which is essential to God's people. We read about it in the book of Exodus, chapter 10 and verse 20, and it says this, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those of you who don't know the story, what's happened is that God's people have been saved in Egypt and end up slaves in Egypt. So Pharaoh, a previous Pharaoh has been good to them and now this current Pharaoh is enslaving them. And God intervenes to rescue his people from slavery. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. Um, There's all sorts of movies and stories around this, isn't there? Uh, Prince of Egypt and all of that kind of thing just to get your feel of what's going on. But there's a deeper message that's going on here, isn't there? There is a sense of God intervening. He's hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let God's people go. Why does God do that? Because he wants to stamp his authority on the situation to say, this is all about me. It's about me. So, Pharaoh is going to stop you from being released, but 
I'm going to intervene. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that the darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. I think that is a fantastic phrase. Have you ever been in that situation? I remember when I was young, we went down, uh, in fact, we've been down since, down Peak Cavern in in, uh, the Peak District. Uh, Fantastic experience, uh, particularly for somebody who's claustrophobic. It's great, yeah, tremendous. Uh, And then while you're down there, they turn the lights off. I, I, I can really relate to that darkness that can be felt. It's so oppressive. It's so powerful, that darkness. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet, all the Israelites had light in the place where they lived. So God has, uh, Pharaoh has restricted the Israelites to a certain place, and there is another intervention of God, remarkable intervention. For three days, he, he puts those who are oppressing his people in darkness and allows the oppressed to be in the light. What is God doing? He's making a clear and a direct statement to say this. You who are oppressing my people, one of the marks that you are under judgment is that you're in the dark. The ones who are not under judgment are in the light. And that idea follows right the way through the Old Testament again and again and again. We have darkness being the indication of God's judgment. For three days, now Jesus isn't on a cross for three days, but there's darkness for three hours. It's as though that's significant as well. But stop a minute, (laughs) because there is something really remarkable here. If you were here last week, Uh, Jesus says, uh, Father, forgive them, because everybody around is the one who is oppressing Jesus. Now, if we go back to Egypt, God's people are in the light. The ones who aren't under judgment are in the light. Uh, And all of those who are under judgment are in the dark. So what would you expect for God to do as Jesus hangs on a cross? On the basis of that, you would say all of those who are, who are crucifying Jesus would be in the dark and there would be, if this is a supernatural event, Jesus would be in the light, wouldn't you? Because surely he's the one who is righteous. But no. In fact, the darkness is absolutely centered on Jesus. So here's our historical significance. Darkness is always, in biblical terms, a mark of God's judgment. It's always an indication that you are under the judgment of God. 
In the Old Testament, we see that God's people, the righteous in that sense, the ones who are the enslaved, the ones who are not uh, the perpetrators of injustice, we see that they're in the light and the Egyptians who are the who are the oppressors, are in the dark. And now we come to this point and we see something completely different. Historical significance is darkness, but there is a current hope in what we see here. And it is this. And it is remarkable. It's the idea that the darkness is actually centered on the cross. It's the cross that is in darkness. And it is everywhere else that is feeling the effect of the darkness that is centered upon the cross. Now, if, you've, if you're following where we're coming with this, there is a simple connection to make, which is this. The reason is because it is Jesus who is under God's judgment. Isn't that remarkable? Right the way through the whole of the Gospels, we have seen that very clearly Jesus and his Father are one. There is this amazing relationship that unfolds right the way through. And now we come to a moment in time where judgment is tangibly described, i.e. darkness, It's tangibly described as being placed on Jesus. Now, I say tangibly described because of this. You don't need to be a literary genius to be able to see what is going on. You can read the event. Most people in this day couldn't read. Most people couldn't read. But they knew what darkness meant. And they knew that when God brought darkness on a situation, it was his judgment. And they would probably have said, well, that just proves it. (laughs) There's Jesus. He's the one that God is judging. We were right to crucify him all along. We've been saying crucify him because he's a blasphemer. And now God is saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. Because all of the blackness, all of the darkness is centered on Jesus. In fact, it goes even further because we read in uh, verse 34, we read a remarkable words. It's, um, the Bible's written generally in um, Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. Every now and then you get interspersed words in Aramaic. These are words in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus reinforces what we see in the darkness. What makes the darkness bad? I know what made the Duke of Wellington bad. It was that sense of being alone. That sense of aloneness. That darkness that could be felt. That sense of isolation. You know, as soon as one of my parents came upstairs, everything was fine. 
You know, if I'd have been a little one in Peak Cavern and the lights go off, that's scary if you're not holding a a grown-up's hand. (laughs) But you know, being with somebody in darkness changes everything. Yet Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is utterly, completely, absolutely isolated. Isolated in a relationship which is continuously being expressed in the rest of the gospel as perfect. He calls God in heaven, Father, 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 right the way through. This is the moment where he says, my God. Everything else, he says, my Father. And now we see a moment where even the word that he uses to describe, which if you want to go back to your Bible, Psalm 22, is once again a prophetic word. It's written there. David writes in those words, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as though David is is declaring ahead of time the word, the very words that Jesus uses. Because he is the fulfillment of what it means to be judged by God. He is, at that moment, judged by God. One of the ways that Jesus describes separation from God eternally is outer darkness. That's how he describes it, an outer darkness, a separation from God. Being in relationship with God is being in the light. Being separated from God is being in outer darkness. And Jesus experienced, as he knew he would, but probably without the profound understanding of what it would mean when it really happened, he knew what it was to be truly Truly separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, (laughs) when we read that, if we see the way the Bible message unfolds, That is probably one of the greatest declarations that Jesus makes. Because it says this. One who is perfect has been separated. Why would God do that? Why would God, the Father, abandon His Son? Why would He do that? Those of us who have loved ones, those of us who know what it is to be loved, all of those experiences. Maybe you, you might say, I don't know what it is to be loved. But the very fact that you crave that love is an expression that love is so, so precious. And a loving Father in heaven abandons His Son. Why? In simple terms two things. Firstly, and this is great news, because God cares about evil. 
I, I know that there are, there are people who might say, as we look around what's going on in the world today, God just doesn't care. Uh, I look at some of the horrific things that are happening, it's as though God is just kind of abandoned. As though people just get away with things. As though it doesn't matter anymore, that God just doesn't care. This says God cares. God cares deeply. God is absolutely determined that injustice and sin will be dealt with. In fact, he's so determined that he describes for us what it is like to be dealt with. He describes it in his son. But it's more than, it's more than a description because we have to ask, so what sin is Jesus describing as he's separated from God? Why is the sinless one becoming the judged one? How can that happen? The only way that God can justly judge somebody is if they are guilty. Otherwise, God is not just. And yet Jesus is bearing judgment. How? He's been perfect. He's lived a perfect life. Unless something remarkable happens, and it does, he becomes the bearer of sin. You can't do it for somebody else. I can't do it for somebody else. If I become the bearer of sin before God, I can't help you. I can't help you as the bearer of your sin. You can't help me as the bearer of my sin. Why? Because I've already got my own guilt. I've already got my own guilt. But Jesus steps in. And he says effectively this. Look at me. I am clean. And because I am clean, I can bear your guilt. And yours and yours and yours and yours and mine and anybody who comes to me and pleads that I would become their guilt bearer, I will be faithful. And the words that Jesus said hours before, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing, become real for me, that even though I become the one who effectively has nailed Jesus to the cross, I realize that he becomes the one who bears my guilt. And the great news is this, <laughs> Jesus is seen as bearing my guilt because it goes dark supernaturally for three hours. It's as though God is reinforcing, you can believe Him. You can trust Him. I'm intervening so that you can know, and I'll describe it even more powerfully, by showing that He can triumph over that, over that guilt-bearing task. As He dies, I'll raise Him up. I'll raise Him up, just so that you can be sure that He's won. You know, there's, there's a bit of a trend at the moment in movies and films where we kind of get a bit kind of postmodern and we no longer accept that it's always the good guys that win. 
And we're all a bit kind of arty and trendy by allowing bad stuff to happen at the end of movies. Do you know what? If that's real life, we've got a problem. The great news about the message of the Bible is Jesus wins. Absolutely. It's great news. It means that he can become my guilt bearer. He can die. He can stand in that place of darkness so that what? So that when I die, I won't need to spend eternity in darkness. I can spend eternity in light if I trust in Him. Three hours of darkness. The one intervention of the supernatural God into the story of the crucifixion. So we better get a grip on it. We better understand what it's saying to us. And we can find hope for today that he has borne our guilt.